the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. Again, happy Friday. We're here in your feeds on a Friday. It feels new. It is new. It feels weird. It does. It feels fresh. It feels like the beginning of a relationship that could go in any direction. Where is it going to go? Who's to say? Who's to say? I mean, everybody's really happy on a Friday. So hopefully your moods are better than, you know, our normal hump day episodes. So uh, I guess we'll get right into it, right? Yes. So today is the second of 10 bonus episodes that have to do with highlighting the victims' lives of the Long Island serial killer. If you are tuning in right now and you have no idea what's going on, we are doing a three-part intensive on the Long Island serial killer every Wednesday. This would have been week two that you've listened to. And then every Friday for the next 10 weeks, we are going to be highlighting the lives of the victims because we feel like it is very important. So obviously, uh, next week is week three, but if you're a part of our Patreon, you will have all of these episodes in your feed right now that you can kind of binge everything if you're a bingey type of person, and we'd love to have you over in our Patreon. Yeah, Patreon, there's some good stuff going over there. A lot of extra episodes. We probably have like over 50 now if you're into binging, if you are not a first degree and you want more. And with every multi-part episode, you're going to get those at the same time before the regular feed gets them. But back to the special bonus episodes that we're doing. So not only do these victim-focused episodes give us just one more way to bring awareness to these victims and to the Long Island serial killer case, but they're also a way for us to tell you about another initiative that is sort of encompassed and this is part of. So basically... This initiative is one that we're hoping will help sex workers because almost all of the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer case were sex workers. And that initiative is called the Heavy Metal Project, and it's a joint collaboration, which includes us, Jacqueline and I, and the fantastic jewelry designer behind Jimmy Toast. Her name's Jamie, and she's a Long Island native, and we've known each other since elementary school. And she's designed 10 stunning necklaces inspired by and in honor of each of the Long Island serial killer victims. And these necklaces are available for purchase. Every week, it will coincide with the drops of these special episodes. And you can get yours at theheavymetalproject.com. So right now, you can go to theheavymetalproject.com and get the Valerie necklace that is going to coincide with today's episode. And 100% of the net profits of the necklaces are going to the Sex Workers Outreach Project, or SWAP. It's a non- Profit dedicated to the fundamental rights of people that are in the sex trade. And they're really working to end violence and stigmas against sex workers. So again, theheavymetalproject.com. And if you can't buy them yourself, you know, they're still worth looking at. They're really, really gorgeous. And uh, we really love everything that Jamie behind Jimmy Toast is doing. So shall we uh, get into today's episode and honor the life of Valerie Mack? Yes, absolutely. I do just want to make one clarification, and this is something Jack and I have been talking about. There's a lot of language when it comes to nonprofits and donations and things like that. So when we say 100% of net profits, that just means the only thing that is getting paid for besides just being donation is just the materials that were made, that the necklaces are made of. So we're not taking anything. Jamie's not taking anything. Um, literally just shipping and materials and and that's it. The rest is going directly to swap. So you can know that 
your donation will make a difference. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. On November 19th of 2000, 10 years before any victims were discovered on Gilgo Beach, some human remains were found in the Long Island State Pine Barrens Preserve. Several hikers were trying to enjoy the scenic forests when they came across body parts that belonged to a young woman. She was nude and wrapped in trash bags, and her head, hands, and one leg had been removed. Only her torso was left and had been cut into several pieces. Experts determined that this unknown woman had been murdered and this was considered a homicide and that she'd probably been killed weeks before her remains were uncovered. Later on, the public would deem this unknown woman the Manorville Jane Doe. But for now, there was little to no news coverage about her and no one could create a composite sketch of her face because her head was missing. So Manorville Jane Doe remained unidentified and there were no developments in her case for 11 years. And that was until April 4th of 2011. That's when Manorville Jane Doe's head, hands, and right foot were discovered. They were in a plastic bag near, I guess you're going to guess it, Gilgo fucking beach. Okay. So what's going on? Who was this Jane Doe? If her torso was all the way in Manorville, it's a completely different setting. It didn't make any sense at the time. Manorville is a desolate area, thick with woods and trees. There are houses there and there are some stores there, but it's the kind of place where you can't see your neighbor's house. There's that much woods between each home. So this begs the question, why was the rest of her body found over 40 miles away in Gilgo Beach years later. And was this the work of the Long Island serial killer? And if it was, why was his MO slightly different than that of the Gilgo Four victims? So to answer these questions, you all know the drill. We're going back. So during the search for Shannon Gilbert, the police accidentally found four dead women on Gilgo Beach, and they were the Gilgo Four. And this discovery exposed the previously unknown Long Island serial killer, and it also incited this massive search of the Gilgo Beach area. And that search led to the discovery of six more victims, and this included the set of remains for Manorville Jane Doe. And she was sometimes referred to as Jane Doe number six. So right away, the authorities matched Manorville Jane Doe's torso to her newly discovered head, hands, and foot. This means that way back in the year 2000, When the Long Island serial killer murdered Manorville Jane Doe, he must have dismembered her body and put her torso in one remote location, Manorville. Then he drove miles and miles to a second remote location and hid her more identifiable body parts there near Gilgo Beach. So given this choice, it kind of seems as though they're trying to be super careful. And It makes sense that this Jane Doe was one of the early victims because the killer's MO was in this early stage. And we see later with the Gilgo 4, he's not dismembering anymore. He's putting the whole body in this location in Gilgo Beach. But it kind of seems obvious why. The torsos that he's putting in Manorville are being discovered right away. But these other parts that he's hiding in Gilgo Beach are not being found, and they weren't found for over a decade. So my theory was that, and I've been to Manorville, I've seen it, I've been to Gilgo Beach, I know all these places. I think that the killer was afraid to drive with an entire body in his car. Right. So he's like, I'll leave the big parts here so I don't have to drive. If I get pulled over, I'm fucked. 
Yeah. But if I have just small parts, I can hide them in a backpack or something else. If I get pulled over, what are the odds that they're going to search my car, you know, in any significant way? And then when he's realizing, oh shit, they keep finding these torsos in the woods, but they're not finding the shit in Gilgo Beach. That's when he's like, hmm, maybe I should put everything over there since nothing's being found there. So it kind of makes sense that an early MO would be this dismemberment and then he would change that over time. Um, But no matter what, when this was going on, when the body parts were found in Manorville, you know, and then found in Gilgo Beach later, there were questions. Is there one serial killer? Is there two? Uh, what exactly is going on here? And it's easy to see why. I mean, 40 miles is is significant. So, you know, police are trying to work through this in real time. But either way, even though these body parts, these identifiable ones were found in Gilgo Beach, they still had no idea who this victim was. Who was Manorville Jane Doe? For almost a decade after her second set of remains were found, nobody knew until 2020. That's only three years ago. And that's when Suffolk County's homicide detectives and the FBI started using genealogy databases to try to name lists unidentified victims. They put Manorville Jane Doe's genetic profile into a database like GEDmatch or something like that. And after an exhaustive search, they finally found a match. Police in Suffolk County today released the identity of a victim in the infamous Gilgo Beach murders. Police say Valerie Mack is the name of the victim previously called Jane Doe 6. She disappeared back in 2000 and parts of her remains were discovered in two different locations 11 years apart. It has been 20 years since the family of Valerie Mack has seen her smile or heard her laugh. But now, knowing her fate, as one of the escorts who was a victim in the Gilgo Beach murders, brings a whole new set of unknowns. Working together with our federal partners, we have been utilizing a scientific technique called genetic genealogy. Advances in technology have been the best tool in the case of the suspected serial killer or killers that has perplexed law enforcement since the discovery of multiple bodies 10 years ago. That's right. A Georgia man had received a DNA testing kit as a gift a while back. And as it turns out, he was Manorville Jane Doe's distant cousin. So detectives were able to use this cousin's DNA to track down Manorville Jane Doe's aunt. Then the aunt's DNA pointed them to a niece, and the niece got them to Manorville Jane Doe's son. And his DNA conclusively proved that Manorville Jane Doe was 24-year-old Valerie Mack. And she'd been missing for more than 20 years. Valerie Lynn Fulton was born on June 2nd of 1976 to her mother, Patricia Fulton, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Patricia had a lot going on when Valerie came along. She struggled with drug addiction, serious health issues, and abusive relationships. And she was a mother of four already, and Valerie was her fifth and youngest child. So Valerie ended up in foster care system at a very young age, and she moved between seven different foster homes over the course of nine years. That was until one day, nine-year-old Valerie was adopted by the Max. And if you've ever been involved with or know anything about the foster care system, that's a huge deal. And I actually don't know enough about the foster care system because I think there'd be hundreds of parents in every community clawing to adopt children because I just hear of all these stories of people wanting to, but I, I had no idea it was that difficult. Well, it's difficult on both ends too. It's difficult to adopt the child, the child as well. So it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So there are over 400,000 foster kids in the United States and only 12% of them get adopted. So given those numbers, this was kind of a miracle. And Valerie's adoptive father, Edwin Mack, was an engineer and her adoptive mother, Joanne Mack, was a pharmacy tech. 
And Joanne told Newsday that Valerie was a wonderful girl with a quick sense of humor. And Edwin said that Valerie was sweet, saying we liked her and she liked us. And even Valerie's new sister, Danielle, really loved her as well. She told Newsday, the thing I remember most about Valerie was how fiercely protective and nurturing she was towards those she cared about. I looked up to her and she was the coolest person on the planet to my little kid mind, which is a really cute quote to say. So cute. So Valerie and her new family lived in a nice home in New Jersey in the countryside near the city of Port Republic. And Valerie was really thriving in her new home. Yeah, everything was kind of coming up roses for Valerie. She was a good student, and she developed an interest in theater. And she even learned how to play the piano. But then when Valerie started in high school, things kind of took a turn. Suddenly, Valerie wasn't excited about school anymore. And she started hanging out with kind of the rough kids, the rough crowd. And she would run away all the time. She was really rebelling. She was really rebelling. It kind of seemed as though maybe the pain and instability from her earlier childhood, you know, like being in the foster care system and being put up for adoption and all of that was kind of manifesting itself in the form of rebellious behavior. And these things do come up. I mean, that's psychological pain that is going to manifest if they're not treated properly. And even though she had these loving adoptive parents, sometimes these, these wounds are super deep and hard to heal. Absolutely. And just in general, obviously, there's a lot of teens that are pretty rebellious. Alexis has talked about this. Oh, I was the worst. Many times. I can't believe I'm here. I was the worst. (laughs) So you get it. You know, 14 years old, being rebellious, doing the thing. So while Edwin and Joanne were concerned about Valerie, they knew that there were steps that they could take to really help her. And they took Valerie to counseling at a children's crisis center. But unfortunately, that didn't seem to help Valerie out that much. And by the time she was 17 years old, nothing had improved. So now, you know, Edwin and Joanne, they tried everything that they could do and they were kind of at a loss. Right. And Valerie, who was 17, moved out of her parents' house around 1993. And she went to Wildwood, New Jersey to live with her half-sister. And by 1994, she'd given birth to her son. And Valerie, like a lot of new young mothers, she was overwhelmed by her baby. I mean, I would be as an adult. So... I can only imagine how stressful that was. And Joanne told Newsday she was afraid she couldn't be a good mother. And so Valerie left her son in his dad's care a lot. And she began traveling frequently between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. At this point, Valerie was struggling. She'd started leaning on drugs to self-medicate, and she'd had a bit of a criminal record. And she was also getting involved in sex work. And by this point, Valerie's parents were really worried about her and they just wanted her to be safe. So when Valerie moved back in with her parents in 1999, they were super, super happy. Valerie had returned home after realizing that she had a heart condition. So she really needed the extra help and her parents were super happy to give it. Right. And now that Valerie was back home, somewhere safe, comfortable, and surrounded by her supportive family, her life was kind of getting back into a normal routine again. And she was working a normal job, and she was fast-tracked for a manager position at the local Dollar Tree where she was working. And her health was improving. Remember, she had that heart condition, and things seemed to be doing much better. But despite all the good things happening in Valerie's life, her anxiety seemed to be getting worse. And for some reason, Valerie was convinced that something really bad was going to happen, but she just didn't know what it was. In the summer of 2000, Valerie took a trip to Wildwood, New Jersey. She said she was going to see her half-sister and son, both of whom still live there. And initially, Valerie's parents thought that she was coming right back after this really quick visit, but Valerie never came home. 
Instead, she went to New York City with some guy that the Mack family didn't know, and that was the last that Valerie's family knew where she was. After not hearing from Valerie for a few months, Edwin and Joanne Mack went to the police department to file a missing persons report. But the police literally turned them away and said no. They hemmed and hawed about Valerie being an adult with a history of moving around, a history of drug abuse, and a history of sex work. And that was the end of that. They weren't filing a missing persons report. She was allowed to be gone as an adult if she wanted to, and they didn't think the resources were worth allocating to helping to find her. Valerie was just gone. The police refused to look for her, and the Max would just have to deal with that. Like, that's what they were met <sighs> with when they went to them with concern about their daughter. It happens all the time, and it infuriates me more and more every time we hear a story about this. It's just so sad. Like, and I, I can't imagine being a mother, adoptive mother, or a biological mother being like, you're not going to do anything? And they're like, no, we're not. <sighs> and then not only that, because there was no missing persons report, it took 20, you, you know, it took so long to identify. It took almost 20 years to identify her. Because they literally never looked for her, ever. Yeah, exactly. It's just, just like, like happenstance of the genealogy thing. It's just like, Right. Oh my and she had a son who like cared, you know, yeah. where his mother went. And probably that wounded him to think that she just disappeared on him when oh in fact God, she yeah. didn't. Her life was taken. It's awful. It's awful. So... For years and years and years, the Macs had no idea what happened to Valerie. Edwin and Joanne Mac prayed for Valerie, but ultimately they just wondered the worst. Like, was Valerie dead? Joanne told Newsday, until you know for sure, there's always that little speck of hope. But that hope was crushed in February of 2020 when investigators told the Macs that Valerie's DNA was a match for Manorville Jane Doe. The positive ID was announced to the public several months later on May 29th of 2020 during a news conference held by the Suffolk County PD. Now, Valerie was officially a victim of the Long Island serial killer, and the remaining unidentified Lisk victims included Gilgo Doe, Fire Island Jane Doe, Peaches, and Baby Doe. The following summer, Valerie's family and friends held a funeral service for her, a long overdue one. They prayed, they sang gospels, and they did a balloon release in her honor. And Valerie's mother, Joanne, wore a special ring with a heart-shaped onyx stone. This was Valerie's ring. And... Valerie had been wearing it when she died. And when you check out the heavymetalproject.com, you'll see Jamie's interpretation of this ring as a necklace. Like that's what Jamie was inspired by when she designed the necklace honoring Valerie. And it's it's beautiful. And it's it's as much as you can do when we don't know enough about somebody. You know, she was only 24. Like yeah. if my if my interests and likes and things were measured and stopped at 24, I'm not sure many people would know very much about me either because we're still children. Yeah. If you have any information pertaining to the Long Island serial killer, please contact the Suffolk County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS. There's a $50,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. And stay tuned for next week. You have part three of lists coming your way. And for the next eight weeks... Every Friday, you're still going to learn about each and every victim of the Long Island serial killer. Each of them deserve their due, and each of them deserve your attention because this case still isn't solved. So thank you all for listening and for educating yourselves and for spreading the word. It means the world. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye.